0: are so high on both sides. If we get this wrong, it's very likely that we become extinct. If we get this right, it's very likely we live in utopia. Getting it right is really, really, really hard. So let's pause for the time being, take some time, and let's try to get it right. What's
1: up, everybody? Today I've got a well-known uh he's a master of a few different trades actually a master of poker is made i estimate like it's no longer online but for sure over 10 million from online uh he's a broadcaster as well in the poker world he's also uh you know singing making music albums apparently and he's uh he's had a lot of experience in the business space and investing uh crypto and, and done a lot of it's a great stuff overall. It just had success in many different places. Kane, what's going on?
0: What's up, Jungle? Thanks for having me on. That's a it's a little bit of a high estimate for online, but uh, but I'll take it. I think I was probably okay. just shy Maybe. of the just shy of the eight-figure mark. Oh, the, the, oh well, you know, <laughs> like,
1: who cares? It's like just the casual eight. Or whatever I, I don't know what it is but I, I just thought you were one of the biggest winners on full back in the day and on uh i would think on poker stars too certainly i've always seen you playing nosebleeds you I, I remember even as i was coming up i saw you sitting at like the highest stakes and uh, apparently playing 501k with gila Liberté, um which i want to get into a moment i also want to mention by the way guys kane's now focused his uh his capabilities on stopping ai which uh, might just kill us all in, in uh, you know, 10 years or whatever. But, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. We're figuring it out. Uh, here's where it all starts. It's the grassroots, you know, it's where it all begins. Um, it, could,
0: it could, and, uh, you know, sev- it, these timetables are all being moved forward, Jungle. So, whereas people who were worried about X-Risk from AI a couple years ago were saying, well, you know, in the 2040s or 2050s, now, they're all, now they're, people are saying we might have AGI before 2030. Uh, which is crazy, AGI being Artificial General Intelligence.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, like, people probably don't know what that is. Now I've started reading about it myself. I've read a lot of interesting things, but it basically, yeah, we'll get to it in a second, Um, but it seems like a case for King (laughs) Kalas.
0: King Kalas.
1: King Kalas, King Kalas case. All right, that sounds, that's (laughs) even better. (laughs) You should have known how to pronounce your name. But anyway, real heaven. So, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about the super high stakes. You're also... Um, to my knowledge, and at least according to the internet, you're the biggest winner. You've won the biggest pot on uh, that's recorded online of 2.18
0: million uh, is the number I believe, is that correct? So 2.18 million was the biggest televised live poker hand when I won it in 2018 at Triton. I think since then there may have been one or two larger hands that have, that have been won, but at least for some period of time, I had won the largest televised uh, you know, poker hand in the world at Triton in 2018, that was against Jason Kuhn, and it was, uh, it was a cool experience. I actually broadcast that whole Triton series, and oh, really? the only way I was able to get a seat in the game was because when they asked me to, to commentate, we were talking about compensation, and, and one of the things that I, that I wanted was if I were gonna broadcast the whole series, I wanted a seat at the big game at the end. And you and actually were at, you and I were actually at that table together. Jungle.
1: Uh, yeah, I forgot the hand though. I, for- I forget. I what <laughs> happened. Um... Uh,
0: it was it was kind of weird. Um, somebody opened. I I forget who, but Jason or no wait no Kuhn opened and then uh, uh, Badzykowski three bet. Uh, or I'm sorry, Badzikowski called and then I three bet out of the small blind in a three blind game with pocket tens. So Coon opened, Badzikowski calls, I three bet tens, Coon four bets with ace queen offsuit. Badzikowski mm-hmm. folds, I call my 10s, and then it comes low, like, um, you know, three, five, six. check, bet, call, turn 10, which was nice, <laughs> check, bet, call, river, ace, check, he value bets all in with, with ace-queen, and, and I snap.
1: Oh, that's nice, that's convenient. Yeah, there you go. Um, that was a really huge one. Uh, speaking of broadcaster, I actually look like a broadcaster right now. At least that's just, this is how I imagine broadcasters look with the headphones and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I'll take it. You got the the slick back hair too. You look more professional than me. You are more professional than me, I think. Um, matter of fact, I need more professionalism. I've got a uh, I've got a microphone here, but it's missing. Um, it's missing a leg. So that's. Uh, <laughs> but it's a good microphone. I just uh, need to find the leg, but you know, um, uh, jungle Man problems. So, yeah, I, I admire your professionalism. Good job. Um, Thanks, I, uh, I thought I thought it'd be cool to uh, also talk about how you ascended in the stakes and a little bit about your back background history. I understand uh, your dad also was, um, you know, famous uh, commentator, broadcaster. Um, and, uh, you know, your brother is well known in the in the space as well uh, did they have a big impact on your life? Uh, are you guys close?
0: Oh yeah. So it was a huge impact on my life growing up at the ballpark with my dad. He was a broadcaster for the Philadelphia Phillies for 38 seasons. Uh, Mm -hmm. he's in the Cooperstown baseball hall of fame for, uh, for excellence in sports casting. And he was a voice of NFL films, uh, for, for many years. Um, John Facenda was the first voice of NFL films and then my father did it after him. Uh, my father passed away in, in 2009, uh, but what was amazing is the Phillies won the World Series in 2008 and uh, he got to, to make that call, uh, which, was, which was so special to him because the Phillies hadn't been a good team for many years before that, but my dad was just such, a, such an optimist about it and he just loved what he did. And so I'd say the biggest impact that you know, my father had on me really two things. I mean he instilled in me a love of sports, a love of baseball, a love of, of broadcasting and commentary, which I've then taken into poker, but also I got to observe what it was like uh, to be around somebody who just actually loved what they did for a living you know not somebody who was working for the paycheck uh, but you know somebody who, who just loved to get up and, and go to work every day. And in fact there was there was one point where my mother told my father, listen, um you know harry you haven't gotten a raise in forever you're underpaid you're a hall of fame broadcaster now uh you know you need to play hardball a little bit with the phillies and if it were up to him my dad didn't care you know my dad was just happy to be doing what he was doing so they got a new agent the agent told my dad the only thing that you need to do is not talk to the phillies My dad said okay no problem and this it it just kind of went on and the phillies weren't contacting him and i think they kind of knew that my dad would you know he just loved what he did and he'd eventually come around And um, it became a big story in in the press and in the media. Oh, is Callis coming back? What's going on? And it was just making my dad so depressed to not have a contract for next year. And finally, the head of the Phillies called up my father and and said, you know, Harry, um, you know, let's get together. Let's not discuss business. I just miss you as a friend. They got together. They had a couple drinks. And a couple minutes later, my dad was like, well, to be honest, I would work for the Phillies for free and uh, <laughs> that's uh, not the best negotiating position when you're looking for a raise they agreed on some you know uh, they agreed on some type of small raise and uh, and my dad took the, the position back but uh the point of the story is that you know he would have worked for free and he just loved what he did and it was such a cool thing to observe that uh, growing up you know because if you know as the saying goes if you if you love what you do then you never work a day in your life
1: well yeah i mean uh it's, uh, it's definitely important to love what you do. Uh, I would think that the ideal situation is they pay him his true value's worth and he doesn't have to ask for it, right? Um, or he gets his payment somehow. Um, like, it's not, it seems like not really right to not pay somebody because they love what they do. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, because it's, that it, it seems manipulative, I would think.
0: Well, I mean, listen, you know, the Phillies are like any other organization, they're a business and with their players, with their broadcasters, with everybody on their staff, they're trying to negotiate for the for the for the best price and you know, the better contract they get with my dad or with whatever other player, they're able to have a, a better team and a better roster and you know, they're able to to build the organization better. So I understand and it's it's my father's responsibility to negotiate on his on his own behalf and by any means, you know, nobody would say that we were struggling. You know, my father was was making a very reasonable salary. It was just, uh, from what he understood, or from what my mother understood, anyway, it was was just uh, less than other Hall of Fame sportscasters. But to be honest, that wasn't important to my dad. Um, And so, uh, you know, what's amazing is that he got to do, for 38 years, uh, the thing that he loved, and for the team that that he loved because he actually was offered a, a position that paid more uh, not to do play by play, but rather to, to be like on camera talking about baseball. And it, mm-hmm. when I say more, it was a substantially more. And he declined because he just loved one doing play by play Two, He loved the Phillies organization three. He loved the Phillies fans. I mean, he, he was just a Philadelphia guy.
1: Oh, nice. Okay. Um, well, I'm, um... Glad it worked out for him. I mean, I still think they should probably, like, make sure he's well-compensated. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he does have to he does have to figure, you know, he does have to defend himself at the end of the day, um, I would think. I mean, I have other thoughts on that, but uh, it goes into moral philosophy or whatever. But um, I understand you also sang for the opening Phillies game. Um, I don't know which one. Uh, but I know, you, like you stand like publicly in front of like a, a huge audience, and all of that, which is quite an impressive feat. You want to talk about that?
0: Yeah. So I've, I I sing at every Phillies home opener uh, in Philadelphia, the first home game that the Phillies play in Philadelphia every season. I've done that for the past oh. eight seasons. Yeah. Oh, excuse um, me. Oh. Sold-out crowds the past couple of years, anyway, which means you know 48,000 people or so, 42, 48,000 people. Um, and last year, so this year, the Phillies made it to the NLCS, but they did not make the World Series. They lost to the Diamondbacks in the National League Championship Series. I sang at Game One of that, which was totally insane. Um, the Phillies ended up winning that game, but then we lost uh, by the end of the series. And last year, the Phillies made it to the World Series. Um, And I got a chance to sing God Bless America at the World Series, which was obviously insane. I mean, there's no other experience like singing at the World Series game five in front of 48,000 people uh, on the field in Philadelphia with everybody. They're just rooting for the same thing as you, which was to take down the Astros. Unfortunately, it it didn't happen. Uh, we, We lost to the Astros in that World Series, but it was it was just such a surreal experience.
1: Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Holy shit, you're like uh, doing some massive things. Yeah, man, it
0: was it was cool. It was uh, it was humbling. It was cool. I had a chance many years ago to sing at an NLCS uh, game. I believe uh, we were playing the the um, the Cardinals, uh, where I sang "God Bless America," and uh, Taylor Swift sang the, the national anthem, uh, which was which was interesting and cool. It was it was like after she released her first album and she wasn't really as well known as she is as she is today um but yeah i've you know i've been involved in singing at phillies games and sporting events in general for for quite a long time singing the national anthem and and god bless america
1: oh awesome well that's a that's a that's insane uh yeah that's really um that's a great accomplishment especially on top of like what you've done in poker um so you really succeed yeah like killing it in multiple different places I, I understand
0: is that something you would do jungle if the uh vegas golden knights ask you to come sing the national anthem you think you could pull it uh,
1: off? i i would but i would need a lot of practice first i'm not currently weighing but working on the singing and i think uh i think in that specific way i'm shy but i do have um, some musical talent as it turns out now most people don't know um uh, I I like to public speak actually, so work on that. I mean, I don't know. I think it's gonna be a real long time before I sing in front of anyone. Do you play? Probably, well, you said you have musical talent. Do you play an instrument? Or? I played piano for five years. Um, yeah, I was a pretty talented, artist, but I never really worked at it. Um, I'm like good with music in general. I would say, like mm-hmm. I or at least in school I was, I should say. Um, there's been talks of a poker band coming together, by the way. There might be some poker entertainers. Really? There's some people that are really good at stuff. Yeah, like I was talking to um, Benny Glazer the other day, and he said, uh, he was saying how he
0: he's like really good at the guitar, like really good at the guitar. Really? Like I didn't, like How play, did I not know that? Benny's a friend, and I, I didn't even have any idea. That's so wild.
1: Uh, yeah, well, he... Uh, yeah, he can uh, play like, like really hard solos that you don't even you hear in like underground music, uh, from like virtuosos and things like that. Basically. Oh wow! Is well, effectively a
0: virtuoso. That's I mean, insane. He then he should team up. Well, yeah. Hit me up about the uh, about the band if they need a a jazz or classical vocalist, then then I'm your guy. It All sounds right. like he might be doing a little more like. I don't know, Led Zeppelin or or Kiss or something. I'm not sure. I'm not quite a screamer uh, vocally, but uh, I'm sure we could figure something out. Yeah, yeah, well,
1: yeah. Um, It seems like he was into multiple different things. So So, uh, I'm sure there's lots of crossover. Like he's doing, he's also um, making some stuff for progressive rock and things like that too. So I guess Led's like kind of in that area. Anyway, well, I know you're releasing some albums. You've released a couple actually. Like you've released, uh, I, I know High Hopes was one. What's the other one called? So that, I think that's, that's it. Two. High, no, just one.
0: High Hopes. I released oh. it uh, earlier it this year in April. Um, here's the uh, cover to the album. You can find it. Um, first of all, you can stream it anywhere where you stream your music on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, you know, just wherever you stream your music. Um, but you can also purchase the album on kanecallis.com. Uh, I believe there's still a couple of copies left on Amazon you can get it in the um, CD or the vinyl form when you purchase a hard copy the cool thing about that is you know if you purchase the album especially if you knew my father you're from Philadelphia it's dedicated to my father and the city of Philadelphia and you'll get a little booklet and inside it goes over exactly how each piece is relevant to my father or to the city of Philadelphia so it's really a tribute uh to my dad and to the city of philadelphia and it's a cover album of of standards so these are songs that uh, you're going to be familiar with if you listen to any sinatra or any any jazz like that um you know luck be a lady is on there uh you make me mm-hmm. feel so young uh songs songs like that and then also you know I'll, I'll, it's not um you know just kind of copying uh, those arrangements that have been done these are all unique arrangements so uh, we really put a cool unique Twist and, and spin on these things on uh, standards like "Street Where You Live," uh, and um, there's a really cool version on "On the Way to Cape May" on there. And you could check out—I got a couple of music videos uh, for the album. You could check that out oh, on really? my, oh, shit. yeah. You could check that out on my YouTube page. Um, there's a music video for "On the Street Where You Live" as well as "I've Never Been in Love Before," and uh, I think both of them turned out turned out great. So make sure you check those out. Oh, awesome! We've got a music artist in the poker
1: world now. Oh shit, <laughs>
0: like
1: a legit one. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no. I guess there's no. I don't know if there's any modern day like, you know, like uh, people that are influenced that much by Frank Sinatra. So there might be like a good niche for it.
0: I, I don't know there's
1: a ton of that. about I would say I would character. say like
0: I would say like uh, Buble is probably the the closest. To, he he and Harry Connick Jr. are probably like. The closest things we got to a modern day sinatra and oh, okay. king callus <laughs> king callus you can't forget about king callus
1: yeah rising star all right uh, i find it pretty awesome like it's uh the poker needs more spice to it you're adding lots of spice you're, you're, you're like a different kind of spice than me too totally different yeah. style.
0: slightly different flavor
1: yeah yeah um well uh I know that you uh are also involved in um in dealing with uh actually you know what you know what we we didn't talk about we didn't talk about how you got so good at poker in the first place and how you uh and like what your philosophy with all that is and uh yeah because i understand you like kind of annihilated for a long time um i do think yeah i do think really one of your skills is professionalism. Uh, and I think that that's something that a lot of poker players can learn from you. Uh, do you want to talk about how you you do all that? And was that a big part of your success in poker? Yeah.
0: So for me, um, you know, I always looked at poker as as a business. And I always mm-hmm. understood, even from a young age, like the amount the importance The significance of the amount of money that was that was being wagered and that i was i was earning so i started pretty young i started when i was a senior in high school is when i started playing online um and i over the course of you know like my senior year in high school i was playing just kind of low stakes games just kind of on the weekends nothing really crazy but i built up um maybe over the course of like Five or six months, I built up a bankroll of, of fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and then by the time I got to freshman orientation in college, I decided, you know what, I, I, I want to do this more full time. I want to start to play like 40, 50 hours a week, and when I decided that, it took maybe two or three months before I was playing Rail Heaven, which was the highest stakes games on online five hundred um, I, oh, I turned shit. my my ten or twenty grand into uh, multiple hundreds of thousands um and i was you know occasionally taking shots at at, at rail heaven um, wait, wait, you had multiple hundreds of thousands you're
1: playing 501k oh, right. oh what the right f- yeah how like, do, like, i got value were... management <laughs> <laughs> i think well, the that's first something time, not
0: to do i think the first time i ever played rail heaven well you know so i disagree there i think the first time i ever played rail heaven i had uh a, a net worth of uh you know that i had earned from poker over the past couple months of three hundred and fifty five thousand or something <laughs> sat down at rail heaven for a hundred thousand of it sold oh, like 60 sold like 60 percent of my action oh yeah 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 yeah. Oh, okay, there so we go. There we go. so but that's the thing i played rail heaven what's funny is i played rail heaven i think a total of like seven or eight times and i sold my action every time but two the two times i didn't sell my action it's because like nobody was online and uh you know, the game was just running at a weird hour. And so I'm just like, okay, I guess I'm gonna own all this. Those are the only two times I lost. The other, <laughs> the other six, I just like slayed. So it's funny how it works out that way. But uh, I still can't complain. I, I did well in the, I mean, those games were like ridiculous. What was so funny is those Rail Heaven games, 500 1K games were like so much softer than like the regular 2550 games I was playing at the time oh yeah, yeah, yeah that probably is true it's what's
1: weird thing about poker is like after a certain point games get softer right at <laughs> the higher stakes. i mean
0: especially back then especially back then right so the people who were playing in those rail having games like okay there there were a couple players who who played like regularly but like i like you know phil galfond was in those games and he was he was good but then there were just people who weren't like regularly playing the cash games who were regulars in those games. So, like, Zygmunt, like, did not really play much No and Hold'em back then, and he would <laughs> jump into 500-1K. And John That's Juwanda, hot, yeah. like, who's a great poker player, but, like, he wasn't really playing online, you know, consistently then, he would jump into 500-1K and it would just be, like, a cast of characters who you weren't used to seeing at the regular 25-50 stakes. Like, back then, the 25-50 lineups were, like, you know, Sam H wasn't jumping into the 500-1K game, you know?
1: Mm-hmm so funny yeah uh yeah weird things happen when the stakes get weird i guess that makes sense so well, let's talk about how did you um i mean by 18 i understand you were playing like real heaven also you're playing enormous stakes at 18 years old yeah it might be the fastest so what was it that contributed to your success
0: so i'd say there were a couple I, i'd say the number one thing was i didn't really have a poker ego and never really have had this this poker ego. Um, I guess it's it probably you and I are a little different in that way is that you wanted to be the best and you know you wanted to beat everybody heads up and uh, you studied and tried until you were that way but there are a lot of people who wanted that who had that same goal um, and didn't achieve it (laughs) and uh, you know they might not be around to talk about it anymore. Um, a, A famous example of this would be would be Gasset, right? Gasset was a heads up reg who was uh, very good at the time. And then he just decided, you know what, I'm going to play whoever. And he played OMG Clay Aiken and uh, lost a ton to him. And um, shortly after that, right, we didn't really hear, hear about Gasset uh, too much anymore. I always took a different approach, which was that I'm just going to win money. You know, I don't I don't care about being the best at the game. I care about maximizing my win rate and and winning as much money as possible. And so I would play on a bunch of different websites, although most of my hands ended up being on full tilt because the action there was very good. But I also played from very early on on cake poker, um, and I played on a a bunch of different uh, networks. I actually didn't play too much on stars because that tended to be a little more reggy back in the day. Um, But I played on a bunch of different networks, ultimate bet, whatever, and I would just look for the best games. And um, in the beginning, that started with heads up. only played heads up no woman hold'em and i only played people who i thought were bad and uh the money was really good there for some time but then as time went on um you know as i became 19 20 years old uh there started to be hundreds of people sitting heads up no woman hold'em in the lobby and so you wouldn't get as much action so i started to become you know pretty good at six max um and then i ended up learning problem in omaha and but the the whole time my my whole career Uh, you know I haven't been too interested in playing against people I haven't been too interested in playing in games that only have players who are like trying very hard to make money Um, I prefer to play in games where there's at least one player who is doing it for fun Uh, and I've become pretty good at at figuring out how to exploit those players and how to uh, win money from them and then also as time has gone on now I'm 34 um, I've been you know Profitable at poker, you know. Every year, I've had one losing year uh, since I started playing in in, when I was 18 years old. So I've basically been profitable the whole time. Um, I've also had to learn how to play closer to to what is game theory optimal against the regulars at the table, uh, against whom I'm playing. And I feel like you know that's kind of been natural for me. Game theory has always been natural for me. But I also love Mm -hmm. the exploitative side because those were really my roots. I mean, back in the day. We didn't. We didn't even have like solutions back when I started playing, and I was just like figuring out the best way to exploit fish at heads up, uh, you know, who were just doing ridiculous things, who were three betting zero percent and calling big blind ninety percent. And so, you know, I'm used to I'm used to limping like you know sixty five percent of my buttons and opening like seven x like <laughs> the top fifteen percent of my range, just because these guys are just going to call and check fold the flop or whatever they were doing, you know.
1: Those are the good old days. Shit, I don't know if i played anyone like that. That's pretty intense. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, a big thing that I found I had to do as I got really notorious and started making money was I had to adapt and not focus so much on no minute unless I was, like, going to really go down that route um, and open up more doors so that I could keep making money. I had to... I mean, it sounds like you basically did the same thing, uh, and that's what I advise for the people that really want to make a lot of money is to keep opening doors like if you're gonna make like tons of money um and I was asking you um I wanted to know is that uh why you're does that have anything to do with why you're pursuing like a music career um and like things like investments or is, is there I mean I think it seems like you're really passionate about the music career uh, like that's something yeah. that really speaks to you and then the uh, the investment routes that you took and you know, getting into crypto a little bit sounds like that was more the way of how to make more money kind of situation.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the music thing, I, you know, listen, I'd love to make money for music, but it's a very difficult industry. Um, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of money went into this album. And I'll, I'll be shocked if I recoup what I what I invested uh, in the album. Um, in terms of uh, you know, sales or appearances or anything like that. I mean, it would be great if that happens, but uh, prob- probably won't happen. That's more of a passion project, something I'm, I'm doing out of love. Uh, you know I've been singing my whole life and uh, you know, I'm very, very uh, happy with the way that, um, with my performance, both in the album and my live performances, the problem is just, mar- it's a marketing problem. Like there's so many talented musicians out there who were never discovered um, who never get that big platform, and there are so few spots for you know the musicians who are at the very top. And a lot of that has to do with luck. A lot of it has to do with just kind of catching something that goes viral these days. Um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that the most popular musicians in the world are not necessarily the most talented musicians in the world. And that's really what attracted me to to poker and later investing is that paradoxically, in poker, there's less luck than there are in other professions that you can go into. Because poker, well, it's really interesting because poker in the short run, right, it's mostly luck, but it's, it's similar to if you're a profitable poker player, I mean, it's similar to like being a casino and running a crap game. Like sure, yeah, you could lose in a given night or to a given client or in a given situation, But at the end of the year do you think a casino is going to make money or lose money well of course they're going to make money even though they're running games of luck right poker is the same way where even though poker is a game of luck if you have the advantage in the game then over hundreds of thousands or millions of hands you of course are going to to make money and realize close to what your expectation should be whereas if i went into you know if my primary profession was coming from performing or even what my family did, as, as we mentioned, my father was a sportscaster in the Baseball Hall of Fame, my brother Todd broadcast for the Astros, even if I went into sportscasting for a living, right, a big component of how well you're going to do in your career is right place, right time, who discovers you what's going on with the market, there are all these forces that you can't necessarily control. And yeah. Uh, I wanted to get out whatever I put into something, and so for me, poker was very attractive because at the end of the day, I could only answer to myself in terms of in terms of how I was doing. Yes, over the course of six months or twelve months, I could look at an EV graph and say, "Man, I'm running below all in EV." But after the, after a decade, you know, however well I did in poker, was going to come down to the decisions that I made. And how good, how well I was playing in, in the game. And I think investing is the same way. I do think investing, it does take longer for the variance to equal out. And in fact, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I guess uh, humble enough to know that I have ran well in investing just by virtue of being an early adopter of Bitcoin. So I bought my first Bitcoin at, at $90 a coin. And so that was a huge windfall because oh, yeah. I held on to those original yeah, yeah, Bitcoins yeah, yeah. that I purchased. I held on to them for, for quite some time, right? So I'm I'm running well in investing. Um, but uh, the good the good thing I like about about the world of investing is that these days, you know, I'm not really in the crypto market anymore. Um, I, not that I will never be, but for right now, I'm not. I do mostly uh, stocks. And uh, really, what what I put in, the work I put in, and the decisions I make is is what I'm gonna is what I'm gonna get out of it. And so the reason I moved into investing around 2018 was simply because it's more scalable than poker. Poker, I realized there was a certain ceiling. You know, once I had accumulated X amount of money, uh, you know, there, yeah, there was a 500, 1k game, but there isn't necessarily a 1k, 2k game or a 2k, 4k game. And then meanwhile,
1: 500, 1k. Meanwhile, I started
0: to get blocked from being able to participate in any of the high-stakes games. You know, people, uh, when you are Sometimes people don't don't realize this who aren't professional poker players. But the uh, the players who are playing the, the highest stakes uh, poker games that you see streamed or whatever aren't necessarily the best players. They're just the players who could get a seat at that game. And a lot of yeah. times you're getting a seat at that game because you're not a good player, specifically because <laughs> you're not a good player. So it's for kind me, of like weird uh, paradox.
1: It's like one of the redemption. It's like I think it's a good thing in in a way. But well, we'll talk about it in a second, because uh, I think you have an opinion on that also as well. It's a complicated one, but it's good. Well, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. So, so for me, uh, you know, by 2018, it, it was apparent that uh, I was going to have higher returns investing the money I'd previously made at poker and spending my time there and then still playing poker for supplemental income and because I love it um, than I was concentrating on just making money from poker and just parking my money somewhere else. So I started actively uh, investing my own money. And then um, I moved to Puerto Rico. Uh, A couple years later, I I launched a a hedge fund and I ran actually two funds. One was a crypto fund and one was a traditional equities fund. Um, I've since wound both down the traditional equities fund. I just never really was able to raise that much capital. Um, The returns were at the time, I think, kind of boring compared to crypto returns, it was when crypto was was blowing up, right? So I got a lot of interest in my crypto funds, not as much interest in the traditional equities fund. And um, in order to keep a fund going, you you need to be managing money because there's expenses uh, associated with 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 running a fund that and I also didn't particularly like sales, I didn't like raising. Um, so I wound that fund down the crypto fund, we did a fixed arbitrage strategy uh, with the uh, shares of grace, the grayscale trust, which was great uh, for for some time, but then that, that arbitrage went away. And um, I knew that the the you know lifespan of that fund was only going to last as long as, as that strategy was there. And, and so I wound that down as well. And so now I'm just super happy to be just managing my own money. And that's what I'm doing for like my full time income. What, what precisely was Crystal Oaks doing with crypto? So we were doing a, a fixed arbitrage strategy with grayscale shares. So Um, To make it simple, uh, as simple as I can, like uh, Grayscale is a close end trust. And the purpose of Grayscale was to give people exposure to cryptocurrency who either didn't know how to get crypto otherwise, or who were um, kind of uh, prevented from owning uh, crypto in whatever way. So an example is like, in your 401k, if you want to own crypto, what's the way to do it? Well, you need to uh, own shares of this company, which then holds the crypto and you simply own shares of that company. That's what Grayscale, Grayscale was that company, right? Because you can't own physical Bitcoin in your 401k. So um, what happened is for a long time, these shares were trading at a huge premium to NAV, which means that maybe they they owned Bitcoin and the underlying value of all the Bitcoin they owned was, let's just say, a billion dollars. And the shares were trading as though the Bitcoin were worth $3 billion, something crazy, right? Um, so what I, did, what I did is I purchased new shares directly from Grayscale. And then I had to wait six months in order to sell those shares on the open market to capture the difference between, you know, the, the spread at which I purchased the shares and the spread at which I sold them. Because the shares I purchased were based on the Bitcoin that they held not based on the, the spot price of the shares on the open market. And so that was a great arbitrage play. Um, and it, it was really only good after I launched my my fund for, for one cycle um, because, you know, obviously whenever there's an opportunity like that, it's going to go away pretty pretty quickly. Um, in fact, you know, it, it was bad for it was bad within like one to two months after I launched my fund, because again, you had to wait six months to sell those shares. So clients of mine who got in two months after I launched my fund, for example, and then had to wait an additional six months we sold their shares, they actually lost like a very small amount of money. But at that point, those those shares were trading at a small discount to NAV, um, maybe 5% discount to NAV or something. Whereas, you know, earlier on, it was literally 100% premium to nav the first time that i did this it was before i launched the fund because i was just testing it out to see if it was real if i could do it if i could pull it off i did it with ETHE shares and for those you actually originally had to wait a year to sell them um but on that first go through that i had i i printed <laughs> you know um so yeah opportunities like that come up um they it, they come up sell them. And when they do come up, you don't have too long to take advantage of them. But something I love about investing specifically in the crypto space is that there aren't as many people looking at it, there aren't as many people finding these opportunities, you don't have the Bank of America's and JP Morgan chases and everybody, even if they knew about these opportunities, they're not necessarily exploiting them because we're talking about small amounts of money. Um, For them, you know, they're looking for ways to deploy tens of billions of dollars, not ways to deploy ten million dollars, in order to earn a high return. So uh, I've really enjoyed uh, in my, you know, investing career, like looking for these for these type of opportunities. I also enjoy the macro side. I also enjoy the large, the big stuff. But something I really enjoy is pulling off a trade like that. Right. Another example is is FTM this is separate from my fund, this is in my personal trading. Uh, FTM was a is a cryptocurrency, um, the founder of FTM. I I just had reason to think that he was going to leave the project. He was a well known guy. And the reason I thought that is because his hot wallet moved tokens, uh, moved FTM tokens, a a large amount of FTM tokens. And then I decided to check out, out on his LinkedIn if anything changed and it no longer said like, you know, founder of FTM. So I'm like, this guy hasn't publicly announced that he's leaving, but like probably it's going to happen. Right. So I, I opened an FTM short and what's funny about oh, that that's trade smart. is smart. That's smart.
1: Oh, shit. What was funny about <laughs>
0: that trade is 24 hours later, he hadn't announced that he was leaving and FTM was up like 30%. And I'm like, gosh, am I a fish? Like what's going on here? What does the market know that I don't, but no, I was, I was, I kept my short on. I'm like, all right, well, I guess or it doesn't I'm pay attention to that shit.
1: Like that shit's like really subtle. Uh but yeah, I mean I've noticed things like that being pretty good indicators if there's a change is the biggest thing, because if there's a change shows that there's awareness to that, whereas they might not necessarily care. Like some people will change their thing all the time. Um and some people right. don't. And um like I like if I changed it, it would be weird. Um But uh yeah, that was probably really sharp to be honest. Like that has to be you mean something like why would he
0: the reason i knew and... to look at this is is honestly from like it's it kind of reminded me of like of like sports betting because like so i sports bet but not for a living like i'm a fish right <laughs> but i still look for like things and you know not for large amounts of money but i still look <laughs> for because i enjoy it i still look for things like this where it's like oh is this player going to be traded like you know is lebron gonna stay with the heat or whatever um, way back in the day. And uh, if you look at like changes in their social media, it gives you like subtle clues as to like what they're going to do or where they're going to go or whatever's going on. So I, I find that stuff very interesting. Oh, That's cool. There probably is a lot of crossover, I would think,
1: uh, looking at it analogically, which means that there's probably analogies to what's going on between sports betting, poker, and um, investing. It makes a lot of sense because a lot of the investing spots kind of like basically similar to poker uh, or there's aspects that are similar. Um, you just look for where the truth is really far off from what the people think it is and that's where the money is. Uh, I uh, I also know there's a, a bit of a there's an AI related similarity to investing that I happen to know um, in that uh, you know how neural networks work is that they have a very robust strategy or at least this is my understanding that there's like some strategies investing that are very robust in that they will, um, they tend to be like very consistent and they make sharp changes based off of new information. They change quite rapidly, basically, based off of new information if they get like the right kind and they're constantly re-aggregating information and changing it. Whereas there's a lot of people that don't really work like that. Um, There's a lot of, and that's like, if people work kind of the opposite way where they don't change things, it becomes a very risky situation. But this is um, a strategy that, doesn't like crush all the time, but it but it uh, waits for the right moment and then crushes kind of thing. It like can Hmm. lose slightly, in fact. Um, And that's Well, well,
0: in investing, it's very important not to be reactive to information most of the time, especially information that is is public, right? So the difference between the FTM trade that I made, and what I'm talking about now, is in the FTM situation, I thought that this guy was going to step down from FTM, but the market didn't think so. It hadn't been announced, right? I just found these subtle clues. If you could find that in investing, and normally in in the stock market where you where you find that are are in like earnings calls, um, or or in, you know, it's not on Google, right? It's, It's before the article hits Google, you're picking up on these little subtle clues. If you can find that then great that's a great thing to trade on but if you're trading on even something that was published on google 30 seconds ago the market has probably already responded to it either because there are you know computer algorithms that are responding to it like that as soon as that news is published but even even before that you know you will have inevitably people trading on this on the inside even though they're not supposed to right you will have people trading uh on on the inside knowing that this article was going to be published and you know so you're going to be late to the game if you're waiting and and trading on on news
1: there's there's kind of a hidden um hidden issue that you're alluding to here uh and firstly um and also i want to mention it's the same in poker i mean you want to find you know these subtle clues that aren't obvious uh if something's obvious there's no value in it right it's good in fact that the truth is hidden and if you can find the subtle clues that are true clues that's where the value is because there's lots of subtle things that don't mean anything um, or at least they're not easy to interpret properly uh, like you have to look at the whole picture but um, there's a subtle thing that you're alluding to which is that this game of like trying to beat the market or this is how I'm interpreting it at least maybe you can tell me if I'm right but this game of trying to beat the market by being faster and faster is kind of a loser's game if you see, because it's like, how do you know if you're the fastest? Like, maybe someone is better inside information than you, or whatever. If you're like even inside trading, and uh, it's really easy to fall into the narrative of, oh, I've got the best inside information. Like uh, now I'm, you know, the people are doing all this fair shit, and I'm doing this this not fair shit, and I've got the best inside information. But like, if we're playing the game of okay now we got this new weird unfair advantage then why can't someone have some other weird un- unfair advantage if you know what i mean do you know yeah, that
0: makes sense i i think i think in investing like what you'd want to do whenever you have any sort of information is you got to look for signs that the market has already digested this information and so let's say you have like a, a signal that a stock is going to have good earnings right uh, go look at at the way that that stock is traded, go look at the volume with which that stock is traded over the past couple days. If the volume has spiked recently, if the stock is going up, right? If there are more buy buy orders and sell orders, maybe people know what you know already, right? If it's trading flat, if volume down, then maybe you found something that the rest of the market hasn't. And this is this is kind of like what the whole base of technical trading is. Um, like a lot of people think technical technical trading is nonsense. I'm not one of those people. Um, I'm not a technical trader, but but I also don't think it's nonsense because basically at at its core, what patterns are supposed to tell you is basically analyzing like what large players and insiders know, and are doing are they accumulating shares of this of this stock? Are they selling shares of the stock? And when they act, when insiders and and large market movers act in a certain way, it creates the patterns that people trade on, on technically. Okay, yeah, that that makes a lot of
1: sense. Um, You actually uh, gave me an idea here um, that in that poker is like good in that, it reminds me of like how poker is good Um, for one thing. I understand in comparison in investment space and like trading. I don't know how fast you can, I guess you can make money super fast in trading, to be honest. But uh, I mean, usually most investment strategies do kind of the opposite. They're not, they don't make you money fast, but they make you money reliably. Um, and uh, in poker, you can actually make money really fast or pretty fast and pretty reliably. And the markets don't really adjust very fast. In my experience, I don't know what how you feel about that. But like when the Sims came out, the f- simulations, and the AI and all that shit, it took people forever to start using them and adapting. And I don't even think they're really adapting them that much uh, from what I can see. I can see a lot of pros to be honest, but when I play high stakes, I don't see it that much where people are just whipping out those SIM sizes and Hmm. all this like crazy stuff you're supposed to be doing. What's
0: interesting is the larger the market is, I think, and the more money in the market, the faster these uh, changes are adopted. So sure. let's look at poker for example. Um, no limit hold'em is probably the largest market of any of the any of the games, right? And therefore, even though we have uh, simulations for pot limit Omaha, people are are playing much further from what those simulations would indicate in pot limit Omaha than they are in no limit hold'em. Uh, yeah. Certainly in a, a you know ten twenty uh, casino game. If you had a computer analyze every move that was made at a no-limit hold'em table versus a pot-limit Omaha table, uh, you're going to see in the pot-limit Omaha some pretty egregious play, especially pre-flop, right? Compared to no-limit hold'em, and in my opinion, that's in part because uh, no-limit hold'em is a is a larger market in general. There's more people playing no-limit hold'em. It's more competitive for that reason.
1: Yes, uh, I think that's a those are a lot of great points. Yeah. Um yeah that seems to make a lot of sense i found that to generally be true also uh in mixed games it depends on the game like some games don't really have that much margin for error such as limit deuce to seven you can't really mess that one up too much um you can make some mistakes but they're like they really don't matter that much and uh there are some other actually um there's a couple other limit games you can make some bigger mistakes in uh some there's some there's mistakes but people just argue crazy over I don't know, people get really into these get really egotistical about the mistakes. Like maybe the the smaller the potential mistakes the more ego is involved. I don't know if that's really Which true. which
0: which limit mix game do you think has the biggest edges? What's the most important one to be good at? I guess I can say uh Badoogie. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think it of makes what sense. else. It's
1: definitely, definitely doogie. Uh Yeah, I can't think of anything else. I mean, people think there's like big edges in 08. I don't think so, man. i um, uh, just play limit PLO. I'm trying to think like there's really big edges in some of the big bet mixed games. I don't know why these don't run more, but right. they, no one plays them. That's the problem. They're quite complicated and there's ways to torch, torch money in these big bet game money in, in big bet games. Like, Pot Limit Deuce to 7 is not a simple game. Um, and, like, there's a game that I think is actually pretty good called uh, Double Draw, um, where you you draw twice. It's just five-card draw twice, where you can make some huge mistakes, and there's, like, quite some subtlety to this game. Um, hmm. There's, uh, what else? Like, Single Draw, I don't think you can make... You can make some big mistakes in Single Draw, I guess. Uh, I don't... I mean... There's definitely some nuance to that one, for sure. There's some very I there, heads up. I exploit like one really really common leak that people make that can make it like impossible for them to win, um, and then a ring that's kind of non-existent to be honest. But um, hmm. or it doesn't exist. What as about much. stud? What about stud mm-hmm. high? Stud high. I don't think there are that big edges to be honest. Uh, there's some considerably there's some surprises i would say uh there's probably a decent edge in it but i could be wrong on this one i'm not like a master of stud high but uh, i think i'm we need some data to back things up i know you're a data guy because mm. it feels like my stud high
0: results have just not been that good and uh jo- johnny johnny world would tell you they're big edges in stud high
1: you know what i would i would contest that i'll play him stud high heads so. up
0: wow um, look at that the I'm challenge is out there
1: you know it actually will um it's probably retarded for me to say but uh uh yeah i'll, I'll play him heads up we'll see how that goes um
0: i don't know what he's. Talking are about. you saying you think you're the best stud high heads up player in the world
1: uh i don't think i just i just kind of doubt that he's the best to be honest
0: well it's huh?
1: not really let's put it let's put it like this i'm sure he's really good i just um i just am really doubtful that the market is like operating to its full capacity and stud high uh let's put it like that there's not a whole lot of reason to believe that i just think there's probably a lot of potential there and i think that he's the kind of guy that's going to make a lot of these mistakes that you would be able to figure out if you use a more analytical analytical approach to things that's kind of that's roughly what i think i just think uh it's um, he might be the best in the world. I just don't know. I think there's like a decent percent chance that he's not, and a decent percent sure. chance that some intuitive player is just doing some things that are fundamentally more right because of the math, and that you know he he's really sharp and gets a lot of like tough spots right and
0: knows how to deal with things. But um, what do you play? What do you play him on the felt or only online? No, I play him on the felt. Um, you're not worried. You're not worried about him picking up on some jungle man library tells huh
1: i'm not sure uh in my experience the live players have not performed better than than at picking up live things than the online players there's no there's been no if anything they're worse is the weird thing but i'd really love to see some data on the live reads dude um i'm like mostly not buying it for most of these guys uh man like they've just been like wildly wrong in some spots i think i think it's because they're not interpreting certain data properly certain things hmm. probably cuz the, the live stuff is very hard to um it's very hard to know what people are truly feeling and there's different ways to there's different like ranges to put them in when they are feeling or ranges to put them in when they do certain things and people don't do certain uh people actually are quite predictable in a number of ways but they there's parts of the range that people do not put into their, um, they balancing their live tells, uh, that it, it basically people are uh, not doing things that they should be doing if in order to be properly balanced. An example would be that a lot of times people, especially VIPs will do the strong as weak thing. And sometimes people will even invert it but what they don't realize is that often it's not really good to invert it because you don't really want someone to know that you're polarized. What you want them to do what you want them to do is sometimes you want to do the kind of tell that allows to call just as much as someone who might um, I'm trying to think about how to explain. But in GTO there's this thing where you have hands that serve as like sort of bluff catchers and you're not trying to like raise and get much more money in. And you want to use those kinds of hands to, like, catch people that might be likely to induce a bluff. You don't want to use the hands that you want to re-raise with. You want to do something else with those hands. You want to be innocuous with those hands. Is this making sense? Hmm. Whereas, yeah, like, yeah. you don't want to do something that's going to signal a polar or tell um, with those kinds of hands. Like, people don't think like that.
0: Um, so, something ever. that... Okay, so let, so let me ask you this. You talked about the old-school live-read guys maybe not necessarily being you know, great at live reads. So ones in Mix, who well, I'm sure you've played with both of these players that come up all the time, that are David Oppenheim and Ray D. First of all, have you played much with them? And if you have, are they really great at live tells? Have you seen things that are crazy? Because I've heard some crazy stories. So I think the, the
1: truth is, again, a little bit more variegated. I think they actually are really good at live reads, but I think that they... That their live read game might have uh, might have holes in it. In my experience, David is like for sure better. Like that maybe is David's thing. Um, it, but uh, maybe they're like better at reading different kinds of uh, people. Like that could be the thing. Like I also think that's the case with like Phil, where he's like so used to reading fish. Is that in that when someone does something a fish might do, but for a different reason, he's not used to it. I'm just saying that the game of live reading people. It's a lot more complicated than people think. I also think that people do not really read very well in live interactions as much as they think too. To be honest, it's, uh, uh, but I can't. I can't really prove that because I'm, I'm the autistic guy. Uh, I just notice that people read me wrong all the time, and you know, people will say I look serious or I look mad, but I'm just thinking in my head. I'm not, you know, mad. But uh, people right. will often like project. Whatever, due to their own experience, and they don't know they're not filtering that versus actual like what's really going on. But usually, there's like a range of possibilities, as there are in poker, and you have to spilt. You have to first identify the range and also see uh, what's happening. It also works with like looking into people's personalities and things like that too. Uh,
0: What are Hmm. your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I I think that that it's interesting. I mean, live reads are are definitely there. Uh, the question is just how, how much can a human really take in that information, process it and understand it correctly, right? And I think, so somebody from, I guess, our generation who I think has benefited a lot from live reads, or, or at least that's his reputation, is Chance Cornet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played with Chance a decent amount. And it, I've spoken to him about a couple hands we've, we've played or that I've been involved in at the table. And the conversations are always very funny to me because you know I'm like oh you know I, I bet the flop and, and this guy shoved like what do you think about a shove there and he's like oh yeah like he should know that your blinking ranges are balanced and I'm like what I'm like I don't even know what you're talking about like I'm talking <laughs> about his combo choice like you know um, I wasn't thinking about blinking but good to know that my blinking ranges are balanced I guess well one so, thing I, it's just one thing I do by but... oh, yeah go ahead.
1: One thing i do is i actually balance my thinking range which i don't think people <laughs> think about no i've no seriously so like here's the thing that there's a very real situation that comes up is when you're bluffing in a lot of spots so a lot of spots are not easy to bluff in and so what you'd have to do what i would literally do if i got there with a value and sometimes you know to value bet in a spot is pretty simple but when to bluff in the same spot really not really not that easy you have to think about which combos and all this blah 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 so you're not bluffing too much well i have a really good awareness for which spots are good to bluff it or which spots are complicated to bluff in and which ones aren't and then so what i do is i act instantly in all the spots that i know that i just i just know exactly what to do in all the time but the spots where i know that there's something complicated then i enter this um into the process okay what would i bluff with here i literally think about that even if i'm in a value situation um and so like if someone can tell that i'm thinking now i'm legit f-ing thinking and i like count count the pot and things like that so it like how can they read you if you're legit f-ing thinking in both situations but if you fake that you're thinking then you might give off tells that um they can pick up on if you know what i mean because it's kind of if someone's really uh observant they can hypothetically figure out that you're
0: you're faking that you're thinking which is not good um because there's different types of thinking right so i mean one day we're gonna have you know uh if we're still around for it which we probably won't be in my opinion but we're gonna have ai that can look at our face and look at our body language and look at what we're doing and know what we're thinking about right and know whether or not we are bluffing or value betting based on all this, all these factors that we as humans can't even, you know, pick up on can't even put into words, right? If we have a supercomputer that, one day, like, for example, your eyes just went up into the right, that narrows the range of things that you are thinking about in that moment, right? And sure. the fact that your hand is on your chin, that narrows it further, so on and so forth. And if we had a supercomputer to analyze all of human behavior throughout all of history in the same way that LLMs are analyzing all written data, right, and we made that brain super, super big, then it would know what you were thinking about, or at least it would narrow it down to a much more precise probability of things that you could be uh, thinking about in that moment. Something that I find super interesting is what AI is already capable of doing by looking at a human brain scan, so I'm not sure you've seen this, uh, this study or this data, but you can put somebody in, they put humans in an, an MRI machine, they hook them up to a brain scan and they show them images. An image will be like a giraffe in a park. And then it asks the AI, what is this person thinking about? And it literally illustrates a giraffe in a park. So the AI is already capable using a brain scan of reading our minds. No, meanwhile nice. we, well, I mean, we don't like, know how to interpret a brain scan <laughs> right if i sho- even if i showed the world's leading neurologist you know or a group of the world's leading neurologists, say hey, here's a here's a brain scan what's this person thinking about they couldn't tell you he's thinking about a giraffe in the park right right
1: well uh yeah that's really scary but it's our it's also kind of really positive because now you know people look at like the with things that someone can't do as they kind of look at it in a bit too selfish of a way, but they don't look at it the full picture. Like, it's also, yeah, I mean, that's like if it can be used to benefit, it can be used to hurt or hurt the other way. If it used to be hurt, it used to benefit as well. Um, uh, like, uh, if that, the thing that a computer can't do, from my understanding, is it can't like figure out like the meaning behind what all of that is, how the Do you program a computer to, I mean, maybe eventually it will, uh, but program it to figure out like, what's the meaning behind that image and the one that comes up next and, you know, the whole story of events. Um, But that in combination with a person would be really powerful. And what I personally understand from AI is that uh, the human robot uh, combinations are far more powerful, even in games like chess, than just the robot. Uh, Some Cerberus combinations.
0: I think that that, uh, that that is no longer true for chess, Oh, f- but it was true for a long time. Yeah, but that uh, that will be the case for a very short period of time. Like currently, obviously for poker, the human-robot combination is superior to just a robot, right? I, I think there's no debate there, because if sure. poker is a very exploitative game. If you're trying to maximize your win rate and you're playing GTO poker, then... You're, you're really not gonna even come close to maximizing your win rate, right? Whereas if you are a human who understands how to exploit, and meanwhile, you're getting the GTO answers from the robot, and so when the situation arises, you, you basically know what baseline is, uh, then then you could do even better. But that is only the case as long as the AI that we have, as long as the robots that we have are just playing GTO, right? Once they become intelligent enough, they will, will be able to exploit Poker players better than 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 humans can, and um, you know I personally am, am very concerned about about artificial intelligence. I agree with Elon Musk that we're summoning the demon here. Uh, once you create something that's more intelligent than you are, then you um, it is very very difficult to control it. This is called the control problem, uh, and. Throughout history, it has not worked out well for species that, uh, you know, create or summon or from which uh, something more intelligent comes up. So the reason why uh, there are no longer Neanderthals uh, walking around the Earth and they've become extinct is because we have Homo sapiens, um, and and we're here. And the reason why we we uh, won out is because we're more intelligent. We were more intelligent than those uh, than those Neanderthals. So. Uh, from my, and That's why I've been spending a lot of my time and effort uh, looking into AI safety, uh, looking into specifically nonprofits that are doing, I'm concentrating on, on nonprofits that are doing two different things. One is working on trying to uh, solve the alignment problem, or a, at least I, I'm pessimistic that it's going to get solved, but I don't think it's a binary thing. I don't think it's like either AI is aligned or it's not aligned. I think there's middle ground there. And the closer we get to it being a good outcome for humans, the better. So I think every dollar that goes into that is actually valuable. Um, and then the second thing is on governance, I want to slow down uh, the advancement of, of AI. And it's it's interesting for me because I'm a lifelong libertarian. I'm like the last person who you know generally would be talking about wanting government regulation or wanting to slow down industry or progress, but this is a unique technology and a unique circumstance. And I think it should be treated with, with the existential threat that it, actually, that it actually poses. So in the same way that I'm in favor of governments having controls on uranium, because I don't want you know, your neighbor to, to make a nuclear bomb, right? I think that the government should control um, you know, uh, basically the hardware side of, of AI in order to uh, slow down uh, the rate of progress because right now we're developing a mind. currently we're developing you know, models and mines that are doing things that we never expected it to, and we don't understand how they work. The people building them couldn't tell you how it works. They're just building really? it bigger and that bigger.
1: That seems really crazy, yeah. Um, I have a slightly nuanced view in all this, um but i definitely agree that it should be slowed down but for not perhaps not exactly for the reason that's that's uh been that's been uh you know that that elon's saying i think that the demons inside of us i think that the real threat is i mean like it's very you know i want to use the word stupid to think that if you create something especially something that's intelligent um that uh is more powerful than you and you have like with the value system of like i'm gonna try to, to gain as much as possible um the thing is like like when does that value system now turn against you um i think that really the bottom line is uh in order to like the power that you're able to wield on the world seems like it should match your own internal power is what i believe this is why i personally believe in something like uh becoming more enlightened to to the point where now we can like be more and more capable of like not making big mistakes it's kind of like if you have a sword right and if you're not very good at wielding the sword you um you should like take your time with it you don't want to like start flailing it around and like get a more powerful sword even if you have an enemy, or if you've got to cut something, or whatever, like you, you want to like become good first, and then uh, you know start doing some shit. But uh, you know it's the story of humanity, etc. That you know it's like oh well, what's going to fix our problems? Oh, something else will fix our problems, uh, not us. And uh, that's what I personally think on that. I, I think he's like ironically right in that he's summon it does summon the demon, but like the demon will like use this massive weapon and, like, uh, find some kind of way to, like, ourselves. If, um, I mean, I was reading Nick Bost- Bostrom's book and reading about the how hard it is to contain any variation of superintelligence and, like, make it do what you want ended up being, like, really complicated. And it was just, like, really a matter of time before something went wrong. The analogy that he used was that you basically giving a bunch of kids, like, dynamite i mean obviously like one of them's gonna blow it up at some point like imagine how are you gonna maintain that everyone's using ai like in the future like how do you know like someone doesn't get a hold of like you know north korea is like nuclear missiles but why does New- north korea get a hold of some you know sick ai and like you know tells them what to do and ai right. and, and ai decides there's all kinds of crazy shit going on did you know there's like actually a religion? that's uh, making an AI like a su- they're trying to make a super God AI or something like this uh, maybe you knew about this I forget what it's called I, I I didn't I didn't but yeah
0: so what what you're what you're alluding to with you giving people power right is the AI not in its own right being a existential risk but rather like the way that humans use it being potentially an existential risk which I think is is something that a lot of people are focused on governments are focused on, and it's right to focus on, right, like if we have language models, and we prompt those language models, how do we uh, build a a dirty bomb, and it it answers us or how even even worse, how do I build a, um, you know, a, a virus that I can release into the public, and it gives us that answer, and everybody has access to that information, then you can predict that that information is going to be used in a nefarious way, right? The yes. idea is you need to limit the number of humans who have exposure to to that sort of information, and it's correct to be worried about that. But um, the, I think the bigger issue and, and the way that ultimately this is gonna go badly is the AI itself is just going to be more powerful than us. And it's going to do things in the universe that are not necessarily, you know, good for humans. Um, Instead, it's just optimizing its its reward function. And what's really interesting about about this and that that argument and that way of thinking is that the people building these systems, the people building the large language models, right? I'm talking about the Sam Altman's of the world, the Dario's over at anthropic, like literally the people building this stuff all give the existential risk from AI, that the AI somehow destroys all humans they're anywhere from the 10 to 50 percent ballpark in the in the coming decades these are the people building it right so this would be (laughs) like if if you went and spoke to the people at chevron and you asked them you know like what do you think is do you think we're all going to die from climate change they're like oh yeah there's like a 25 percent chance you think they'd ever say that no right so that's how scary this is is uh you know you don't need to listen, trust me on this, like literally the people building the technology are like, oh yeah, there's like a 10 to you know, 50% chance. I think it, it, it comes, it averages out to like 20 or 25%. There's like a 20 or 25% chance that we all die um, in building this stuff. So we're literally playing Russian roulette. And then the question is, well, why would we all die? How would we all die? Uh, and, and that just comes from, you're creating something that's more powerful than you, that's infinite that one day, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't take... The idea is that if it's uh, recursively self-improving in intelligence, then it wouldn't take very long from the time where it's more intelligent than us to be inf- mag- orders of magnitude more intelligent than us, right? So uh, it's believed that once if AI can recursively self-improve, and it, and it one day becomes more intelligent than we are, and it starts self-improving, it would be less than two years for us to have a, a level of intelligence like an ant currently does to a human when, it, when we're in relation to this AI thing. And once that's the case, I mean, you know, we don't necessarily have any malevolence towards ants, but if we go and build a road, right, that's an ant holocaust, right? And uh, ants are not better off that humans are around. And one day, if humans continue on the path that we're going, probably we're going to exhaust all the resources on Earth, and ants will will die off, right? Except for AI, it's a much more accelerated time frame. they're increasing in intelligence much, much, much faster. So the way that we actually would die in that scenario, most likely is as collateral damage, the AI harvests the energy of the sun, in order to pursue whatever goal it needs, because all in order to accomplish anything, it requires energy. Boom, we're dead. We didn't even know why it happens, right? We, we could in the same way when you spray ants or build a road on top of ants, they don't know why they died, right? Um, that, in my opinion, is a likely scenario if we don't somehow uh, 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 come closer to solving alignment than we are right now, because right now there's one person forever for every ten thousand people working or for, for every hundred people working on uh making these things bigger there's one guy working on safety and working on alignment that yeah, that's, that's wrong a fair point
1: yeah that should have been, it should that there's definitely should be more focus if that's like the real proportions there's a couple things i a little bit disagree with um i mean i don't think uh for one thing i think ants are still doing okay to be honest i think ants uh the ants i think they might be the most populated uh animal on the planet i feel like i should know this Some of the jungle man should know the animals um but uh so i think actually current values in humanity are not really that good if we're really honest um especially in that there is a there's quite some value uh there's there's one thing i just realized that is a good thing reason to defend the ants um and uh i mean it might be the case that even like the this i really would like to check like maybe every animal just has its place like like maybe it should i would personally guess that at least spiritually thinking all life essentially is sacred but now i'm going to hippie territory this is where um i don't like this is where i get like a little bit woo woo um but uh there are definitely some similar sorts of analogies where you can like break down that logic and see like okay there actually is like some value to just these like lesser life forms these lesser life forms um in addition like to the ai it's really hard to predict what values it'll end up with That's is uh, one of the things discussed in this book super intelligence it's actually very complicated because you don't know like you have to you can even if you've loaded some values maybe it'll figure out how to like change its own values and like what values will it end up like maybe it AI will decide something like uh, you know, like I don't. It doesn't care about accumulating more resources. It's like get it. Just doesn't want to do anything. Um, or maybe it decides you know the spiritual conclusion of all life is sacred or some shit. Or maybe it decides humanity. Um, I don't know how this works because uh, you know it really you have to figure out its motivations like any person. Um, with the uh, with the ants example, it occurred to me that. You know if you have the value of life forms that are less powerful you then you don't matter you do whatever they want with them then what happens when you know when in the scale of infinity we run along some uh inevitably we run along some advanced civilization that has the same values and they decide oh these guys are ants and then it's going to be on the scope of affinity so it's like not fair to have that and expect that in return of some higher power right so this is a, a situation well, where where the logic yeah, breaks of it,
0: like it's all matter well i i th- whether or not that should or should not be the way that we think about the world that is the way that we have thought about the world and that is observably the way that all more intelligent life forms have thought about the world right we are pursuing our goals ruthlessly regardless of the effect that that has on ants or bacteria or whatever insert whatever other life form and yes ants are still around however there we could name a bunch of different species that are now extinct as a result right. of, of humans living right? To to be other I that, out. right i think that right i mean the most notable being neanderthals right um yeah, yeah. and as time goes on as we can let's say we never created ai but human technology just got better and better and better. Ants and all species on Earth are going to die sooner than if human intelligent humans weren't around. In my opinion, technology is inherently dangerous, right? As we because blast radiuses are increasing. So Yes, if we weren't here and there were no technology, there is is a probability associated with an asteroid hitting earth or there's being some natural disaster and all, you know, ants dying or insert whatever, you know, all fish dying or insert whatever species. But now that there are nuclear weapons, that probability associated with the annihilation of fish or ants or whatever species on earth is much higher. It's it's hundreds of, of of times higher than it would be sure. without us, right? So us now creating this A.I. is is just it's like that on steroids. We're increasing the blast radius tremendously. Yeah. And uh, then getting to your point about we, we can't predict what it's going to want. Um, this is getting into, I think, sentience and whether or not the A.I. is going to have emergent goals that are totally unrelated from from what it was uh, originally programmed to do in its, its reward function, and I think in order to have emergent goals that are totally unrelated, for example, humans have this um, where we were uh, we were you know basically programmed to survive and replicate, and meanwhile, like we're eating ice cream, right? So this you know we can understand biologically like what what ice cream what components of ice cream have have in it that makes it attractive to us to eat, right, but we still do understand that ice cream isn't necessarily helping us survive or replicate. Perhaps a better example are condoms, right? We have condoms and we understand that that's not helping us survive and and replicate. Nonetheless, we're doing it, right? Um, But I think the reason why we do that is because of emotion, because we have emotions and we are sentience. If we didn't have emotions and we weren't sentience, then I don't think we would be having sex with a condom. I think we'd be ruthlessly and relentlessly pursuing a specific reward function. So far, I don't know whether AI one day will be sentient. There are some people who think currently it is sentient. I don't think so, but um, that is certainly something that could happen. But I think that when we're addressing this problem today, we, we should assume that the AI is going to basically follow whatever reward function we program it to do but <laughs> the big part is that we need to think about the sub goals that come from its main goal that's the real problem because anytime you develop an AI to have a main goal it will and we know this it's observable today it will create the sub goal of it will create certain sub goals and one of the most damaging ones is uh, self-preservation and the problem is if you create something that's more powerful than you and you program it to do anything you know let's say we program it to create paperclips as the example everybody uses and it creates a sub goal of staying alive or self-replication what that means is that and it's more powerful than you it will turn the entire universe including you and me into paperclips and there's no way to stop it (laughs) because it's more intelligent than we are so even if we try to stop it even if we think we have some clever way of stopping it right it, it, it's like you're not at that point you're not respecting intelligence like the thing is more intelligent than you so it's thought of that whatever you think a clever way oh we're going to turn it off by doing this we're going to shut off the power grid no no no. it's smarter than you it thought of that it's it's almost like saying oh i'll no problem i'll beat stockfish 15 because uh, i'm going to move uh you know my queen from from you know g3 to, to f6 no it's thought of that like I think the best way to think about it is like, you know, once we have super intelligent AGI, um, we are going to be as good relative to it at manipulating the atoms in the universe as we are at chess relative to Stockfish 15, right? And we cannot beat Stockfish 15 or Stockfish 16 now in a game of chess. We cannot. All humans together, all the best chess players in the world, we can't beat it that's how it's going to be once we have agi we are not going to be able because the world is just one big chessboard we're not going to be able to rearrange the atoms in the universe uh better than than this agi and, and in the end whatever it, it is programmed to do it's going to do once it's more uh powerful and more intelligent than we are
1: um so there's definitely concern for that one thing is that um it doesn't look like intelligence works precisely like that, particularly on the scale of infinity, um, or the scale of the universe. It works that way, from my understanding, for closed games like chess. Chess is a closed game. There's only, you know, there's just shitload of possibilities, but there's, you know, there there's still like a finite amount of games. From my understanding, um, I haven't read much about. Uh, I believe the term is called epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. But um, and we're seeing this a lot in humans which by the way i think our collective human our our human intelligence is kind of scaling too but uh we have to i don't know if that's true or not um it's scaling maybe relative to uh relative to like just our use of certain kinds of knowledge just because of like the internet and all that but i don't know maybe we'll find a way to Scale it properly, scalar IQs, or something. I think IQ probably isn't stagnant, to be honest. Um, I mean, a lot of these things are not really stagnant. Um, but anyway, in a, a from what I understand, in epistemology, basically because there's like so many different different directions of knowledge, and there's so many different like rabbit holes to go down, it's impossible to cover all of them. And it's been suggested, um, this I can't confirm at all, but basically. Uh, humans, or organic organisms to be precise, have the ability to create thoughts that are not um, or perhaps receive thoughts that are not um, do not, you know, that are not uh, what's the word? That are original. I can't confirm this but this is what has been told to me it's told a different kind of way Um, as if like, well where do those thoughts come from, to be fair? I mean, it seems like it suggested that they must have come from somewhere, so something must have been original in the first place. Um, whereas AI does not have that capability, and this is where I don't know where... I can't c- claim this is true
0: or not. That, Cur- that would currently, be, like, the hope. Huh? Currently, though. That, yeah, maybe currently. it can. Currently. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So, okay, so what you're saying is that maybe humans currently don't know how to give AI the ability to have these sparks of genius, and what I would say is that Uh, Right now, language models are doing things that nobody would have predicted, even the people who built these language models. And it's important to know the way that these language models were built. Because unlike other software, unlike your, you know, the software randomization software, or whatever software, you know, is being built for your computer, this software was not built by us programming the language model to do a certain thing. There was not a programmer who sat down and said, Hey, Um, when somebody types in a question, answer based on X, Y, and Z. Instead what it did is it just started with a brain and we built the brain bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and we didn't know what it was gonna do. We just built a brain larger and larger and larger and then we gave it all this data and then we asked it a question and it answered coherently. And that was ChatGPT one right? But at the time when it answered coherently, it was still kind of stupid, right? It would hallucinate a lot, whatever else. And then ChatGPT 2 came around and we'd ask it the same question and it would answer even more coherently. Now all of a sudden we're at ChatGPT 4. Now we can ask it something like um, we can ask it a question involving logic, and it can answer the question correctly. Yeah. It can tell us why a joke is funny. Really? That's not something that just repeating language or autocorrect can do, right? That's something like this is an emergent capability that nobody would have predicted that these models would have that it now has. And we don't know why. The, the reason why it's able to do this is because its brain is so big. right? And all we're doing is making the brain bigger and bigger, and bigger. So it's, in my opinion, it's safe to assume that as we continue to scale up the size of that brain, at one point, this AI will have all sorts of capabilities that we don't understand, we don't know why it's, it's, it's able to do these things. And one day once it becomes large enough, it will become smarter than we are. It will not in every way, right? Like we're not as smart as gorillas at, you know, uh, extracting ants from an ant farm in order to eat, right? So like, (laughs) it's not going to be smarter than us in every single way, but it's going to be smarter than us on net and in the ways that matter in terms of arranging atoms the way they want them to be in the universe. And that's why we need to stop like I think the most important concept to take away from this in terms of safety is we need to agree as a country and internationally to not allow tech companies to build things they don't understand. Because right now we don't understand how it works and we're just building it bigger and bigger and bigger. And the output of this, like if you look at the brain, like our brain, you can make a brain scan and we don't even understand how that works. AI understands how it works. But we somehow but we don't right? we don't even understand how our brain works. It's brain. If you look at, at its brain output, it's 27696432. It's totally inscrutable. We have no idea what what like how the brain is working. So in my opinion, we need to stop making it bigger. We need to have hard limits on making this bigger until at least we understand how it works. Then from there, we can go into, you can't make it bigger until it's provably safe, right? And this is not a new concept. Like there are plenty of industries where you can't release something until you prove that it's safe. The burden of proof is on you to show that it's safe before you release your drug to the open market, right? Well, a drug being released to an open market that's not safe might kill some people. Maybe it kills 10,000 people. Maybe it kills 100,000 people. That would be crazy, right? This, the people building it say, oh, yeah, there's a one in four chance it's going to kill everybody. And we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, all right, no problem. The people (laughs) building it, the people who are economically incentivized to make that number (laughs) lower than it actually is. If you actually, you know... Tapped Sam Altman's brain and got what his real probability is. If he's saying 25% publicly, what do you think his his actual number is? He's probably like, oh, it's 90%. 90% that what I'm building is going to kill everybody. But if I don't do it, it, somebody else will.
1: I'm just going to do my thing.
0: I wish that's what he would say. Um <laughs> well well the problem is is that if he doesn't do it somebody else will right so it's oh, yeah, actually yeah. from a from a game theoretic perspective even if it is 90% to kill all humans he's still correct in building it under the current rules of the game because the current rules of the game are there's no res- there's no restrictions on anybody building it there's no regulation here somebody's going to build it and most of these guys believe sometime in the next 5 to 10 years we're going to have AGI so somebody's going to build this thing so in the 10% where it doesn't kill everybody, why why wouldn't Sam Altman want to own God? Of course. Right. Well, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with you, actually. I think there should be heavy precautions. And also, um, I mean, even if you... What does prove and understand really even mean? Like, how do you prove it's safe? Like, if the AI is super intelligent, it can, you know, you can't... And you're not as intelligent, then you can't, like... It can do things like hide its true capability. You know, like a poker player is supposed to hide their true capability because you don't they don't it's it's good to hide your true
0: power you don't want to like show it all of it um well that's why we need to understand before we reach agi we need to understand how it is that language models are able to do what they're doing and we need to be able able to explain how it is that the brain works right and that hopefully would put a hard cap on how far we can advance these things before we make them bigger and I think. The number one piece of le- legislation that we need and regulation that we need is just a cap on FPOs, which are called floating point operations, right? This is like basically like how much hardware is going into a test run, right? And um, it, it just needs to be capped at a, at a certain amount around what we have today. Maybe even I'd be okay with it being slightly larger, but it needs to have some sort of cap because right now we are predictably on a path where OpenAI or Anthropic or Google DeepMind or Meta or whoever, you know, insert one of the five or seven players who are leading the AI race are just going to continue to buy more and more chips, make the brain bigger and bigger. In three years from now, we're gonna have a brain that's, you know, 50 times the size of our current brain and boom, we got AGI and we don't know how it works. And now, now it is in control of the future of, of the world and not humanity. And you know i i don't like that <laughs> how come because i'm a human so yeah you know i care about humanity
1: yeah yeah well same same i uh i care about humanity too even though sometimes i can be a little bit alien uh <laughs> <laughs> uh so um what was i gonna get up say um i i totally agree with you there should be a lot more restrictions i mean it's really it feels like there's an inevitability of something bad happening yeah there must be there's no of like anything going wrong i mean there's also a weird um a weird risk a weird a conflict of interest that's going on uh where it feels a bit inevitable just because you know all these super powerful uh, corporations that want more and more power um and aren't necessarily 100 percent ethical about it such as facebook uh and you know this max Zuckerberg guy uh i don't know a whole lot about him but uh but, uh you know they are racing towards this power and they don't have any incentive to stop if anything they want to like you know they probably have enough money to push back what is it um these like uh, uh, these lines they, they would probably prefer them to push back so that they can keep progressing further and further to have a competitive edge between the other ones that they have to compete with if you think about but, it no, they no, have like kind of a
0: that's precisely why we need regulation, and we can. It actually wouldn't be that hard to regulate the amount of hardware going to uh, GPU clusters, right? For the really? for the time being, yeah. For, because it's really only a small number of people who are doing this. It requires you sure tens of billions of dollars, right? We're not talking you know, about
1: a, a. How do you know everyone is doing it? Why can't there be like some groups and why can't there be some terrorist group, you know, hidden out in? just get it funded by some crazy dude out in like yeah because because
0: fortunately fortunately for the meantime nvidia basically has a monopoly on the on the chips that are being that are being used here right and we actually we actually already are monitoring the export of these chips because we have controls uh with the export of them to china because the government uh, our government has been smart enough to realize that oh it's actually dangerous to allow foreign adversaries to uh develop um, AI that could be used for militaristic means, which is true, right? But we also need to be concerned about you know AI increasing in size being used for non-militaristic means, um, which would cause us to cede power. So we actually kind of already have uh, things in place to track. Now this won't work forever, right? Because in the long run, what we have in AI is both a hardware and a software problem, where software is going to continue to get better and better and better and better too. So 500 years from now, 300 years from now, maybe somebody can create AGI on their home computer, on their home laptop computer, because our software is is that good, right? That's entirely a possibility, and we'll cross that bridge when when we get there. But for the time being, the problem is really coming from the hardware side, and we actually can solve it pretty easily. Like, Facebook is not going to violate an order, uh, you know, from the the governments that they can't, you know have a gpu cluster larger than than x size because facebook is a is a massive company They they have a lot at stake to lose uh by doing that and that's who, who this is coming from it's coming from massive companies mostly in the united states yes there may be one or two in in the uk who's second on the list but honestly the uk government has really been an ex- exemplary in terms of uh you know the way to handle this on the global stage right i'd like to see the united states catch up to that although i will say that that the biden administration even though i'm not a big fan of the biden administration generally uh, biden did uh, pass an executive order related to ai there were a lot of great things in there i do wish that i really really wish there would have been a cap on um on flops uh, or and or a cap on on the size of gpu clusters because that's ultimately what we need but one of the great things that i think came out of that was um, a requirement on uh, AI companies to uh, basically watermark or advertise uh, what sort of media is AI generated, um, because deep fakes are going to be a huge huge issue um, in the coming years. So there were good things that came out of it, but the main thing is like, we need to slow down our advancement towards AGI. Like the the people building this stuff and computer scientists are saying it's coming in 2029 or so. Uh, That's way too soon. We're not ready for it. We don't know how the brain works. We don't know, um, you know, we we have no reason to think that we're going to be able to control it. The the things that we do know are more scary than the things that we don't, right? Like the things we do know is that even on a smaller scale, these things develop a sub goal of self-preservation. And if you create something that's more powerful than you, that has a sub goal of self-preservation, like you are no longer in control. You can't turn the thing off. Even if you wanted to, even if you tried your hardest, even if you got all the re- human resources in the world to do that, um, you know, <laughs> the thing, if the thing is more intelligent than you, you're not going to be able to. So let's figure out how to build these things in a safe way first, in a way that we might be able to have more control over.
1: You
0: know? I, I, I uh, agree. Yeah. And and the other thing is, right now we're building these models uh, largely unethical. Uh, uh, without a, a view on ethics right so language models are not being trained in ethics or being trained in out outputs we we as humans because we have emotions we naturally have ethics so because uh, unless you're a, a psychopath or a, or a sociopath right you have empathy for other humans and for other animals and for other creatures and that's comes from our emotions like it's an innate quality of being human. It is not an innate quality of a language model to have ethics. It is cold and robotic and it's like giving you an answer or it's maximizing its reward function. And so I do think that as we approach AGI and again it's not black or white whether whether this thing's going to be aligned in my opinion it's a scale we can come closer in the scale, we can move the scale closer to this being a good outcome for humans. If, as we're training these models, they are being trained on, on ethics on human ethics. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, They are being trained to understand and respect human ethics. Because Um. otherwise, they have, they don't have, in my opinion, what is innately human, they don't have that emotional component. And in my opinion, the worst results would be for us to create a super intelligent God that is basically a zombie, a non sentient zombie that is maximizing for something totally arbitrary. And it turns the whole universe into paper clips or bowling balls or whatever it was maximized to do sociopathically, right, that's the worst possible outcome, not just for humanity, but for for the universe for the world, like imagine we create this thing that just in perpetuity, is turning the universe into paperclips or whatever else uh without any knowledge of why or anything like that. it has no emotions um and its only goal is to turn everything into paperclips and in achieving that goal it of course is going to self-preserve and make sure it stays on and do all the other things that these things provably do that sounds like a pretty bad outcome so yeah, let's try well, to it, avoid it
1: that outcome for everyone but that thing uh that would it, for it
0: it's it's great outcome um uh, yeah. But it has no emotions. It, it, like in in the hypothetical I just came up with, it has no emotions, so it doesn't matter. Like it's basically like there's no more life on the planet, and everything is paperclips, or yeah. not just planet, the universe. There's no more life in the universe one day, right? Assuming this thing is great. powerful enough to have more power than everything on the universe, which who the hell knows, right? But uh, and everything is being turned into paperclips. That that sounds like a pretty pretty bad outcome. So great
1: paperclip supervillain. <laughs> Where's that one? In? <laughs> Avengers. Um, actually, I've thought a decent amount of that about this. Like, I beg the question: like, why do we even have ethics? Um, and things like that. I actually think, in fact, that the ethics are incredibly logical, from a certain perspective. Um, and in fact, an inevitability, an inevitability in evolution. After all, they came and they prospered. That they that uh, humanity represents not the ideal level of ethics but a, a higher possibility than previous versions of life that existed in the universe um, like, like sort of a better and better version, I mean the enlightened versions if you look at the ethics of these like, these allegedly deistic sorts of individuals like Jesus and Buddha etc, etc um, you can see actually that they do result in better outcomes, just thinking about things logically, they suggest strategies that when taken onto the scope of infinity should be better for um, all possible individuals, including the individual itself, uh, which is a bit more subtle, but in fact that they're, the point being that they're actually selfish and unselfish at the same time. Um, at least that's my analysis. I, uh, I don't know if like that's gonna show up with AI, I don't know how that works at all. But one thing I can say, one other thing I would personally like to say is I still think that, I mean, this is why I've decided to focus on the goal of somehow changing the ethics of humanity in general because I don't think, I think I think if you change all those problems, like problems with the AI kind of be, solve themselves a bit in a way because now you no longer, you have a, um, a group of people that are going to be acting and thinking, okay, we have to be reliable before you. We- you know, at least Pandora's Box. Uh, we have to like make sure everything's proven, and, and you don't deal with people who are get get really greedy and think, oh, maybe I can cheat the system, or oh, I can like, you know, make infinite or just be happy forever and not do anything
0: and and their mind or whatever that kind of thing. Um, but the problem kind of, with humanity is is a coordination problem. I mean, even if you yeah. could raise the average level of ethics or morality in, in humanity, there's still going to be outlier. I mean, there, you know, we have billions of people, there are still going to be people who are sociopathic, who are, you know, that, to me, is the problem with, um, as we alluded to earlier, with releasing this sort of technology to, to all people, or the fact you know, it's the issue with language models, being able to tell people how to build a bomb, right? I mean, there are plenty of people out, there are always going to be people out there, When we have billions and billions of people on the planet who who lack ethics right i I don't think that's a problem we we currently know how to solve um and we can preach good ethics to people and we can maybe raise the average amount of ethics but the problem is still always going to come from the fact that there are just sociopathic psychopathic and unethical people people actually want to see bad things happen to other people and, and to humanity
1: well um See, so I think there's a theoretical solution. I mean, it's obviously not very easy. I mean, this is what I've basically been working on. Um, I mean, there's ways in which culture moves. You know, uh, actually, by the way, it moves through music. Like you could write, you could write a song about uh, about you know AI prevention or something like that if it floated your boat. Uh, this is what people did in the past, by the way. These these works of art influenced culture and influenced. This is what got me intrigued in art influence these things on broad scales. In fact, there's, you know, all these movies and science fiction, etc., cetera, about, um, you know, AI going wrong, and that's influencing people and thinking, oh, dude, actually this shit can legit happen. Um, like uh, Mass Effect is a video game, like video games, man, and Mass Effect, and uh, I played, what's that other one called? Um, Deuce, Deuce X uh, Machina, something like that, Deuce X, uh, A lot of these things, actually, even I mean you can look about it with bioengineering with halo i mean the flood was basically a virus that was supposed to be a weapon and it went wrong wildly um and even the, the the virus itself said it's a monument to all the sins which is true it was it exactly was um because like it, it existed because of someone's inner uh some civilization's inner like evil shit going on um yeah there's it's theoretically possible to change enough of humanity such that the risk is effectively zero actually um it's just extremely hard um i mean i can talk about my thoughts about how to do that i'm trying to literally uh in case you didn't notice um there's a bunch of different things you can do i mean this podcast is part of it in fact but you know you have to uh but
0: but the but the reach right you're never going to first of all you're never going going to be able to reach every single human on the planet and even if you did i am i mean you can take somebody who is who is sociopathic and put them through therapy for their entire life and struggle to make them not sociopathic by the end you lock those people up (laughs) <laughs> well right well the problem is you're not going to lock those people up until they've committed some sort of crime right so um yeah but it's it's still a matter of degrees right i mean you got people who are somewhat sociopathic and then more So, sort of what are you going to do with the people who have sociopathic tendencies are you going to lock them up you know what i mean um well so here's the thing is that all
1: cultural memes are contagious right like every single um I call it social, like, strategy. They all are, like, strategies, essentially. Like, anything, if you're around a bunch of people that are always smiling and happy, you're probably, even if you're a grumpy person, you're probably going to be a bit more smiley and happy. If you're around people that are honest and are always honest, you're probably going to be more honest, even if you're a scumbag. Um, I, I agree with all that. Like, that's actually happened in the poker world, by the way. Like, literally, people stop cheating be- it's somehow, like, collectively, or cheat it was not stopped all together, but nearly 100% stopped, right? It's like very rarely do you hear about a cheating scandal. Yeah, it still happens, but we've almost reduced it to zero and it can go even further. Like we can go at, reduce it even more, closer and closer. In fact, I want to try to do that.
0: I have some ideas behind that. Um, but unfortunately society at whole is going the other way because things like X, formerly, formerly known as Twitter and even Facebook, to a lesser degree. And other uh, things are going the other way. uh, is causing society to go the other way. Because um, what social media platforms have done is they have basically tried to maximize uh, user attention and retention. And they figured out that the best way to do that is to outrage those people. And so instead of us coming together on some sort of unifying ethical thing on, on Twitter, such as lying is bad, for example, that's not really a compelling thing to keep my attention. A more compelling thing to keep my attention, what actually AI has figured out and put out there um, on, these, on these social media platforms is to make me politically charged and upset at other people. So in my opinion, humans are moving further away from this kind of collective Um, you know, a group of shared ideals and further towards uh, hatred towards one another over uh, differing political ideologies, which, by the way, are becoming more extreme because of social media. So, you know, like 10 years ago, when YouTube first came out, if I clicked on a video and watched, you know, Ted Cruz making some sort of speech, then that would be it and then it would recommend me normal videos. Today, if I click on a Ted Cruz video, well then the next video recommends me as a Donald Trump video. And then the next video recommends me as an Alex Jones video. And the next video, all of a sudden we fake the moon landing and then 9-11's inside job and everything else, right? It is making us more and more extreme in order to uh, retain our attention.
1: Um, Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, I've even seen an example happen to me a little bit. Um, I think uh, that you I think that that's true for the majority of humanity and I think that's absolutely a problem to be honest I think to be honest if it keeps going that direction like how can war not be inevitable right I mean wars just in my eyes in my opinion wars just like the extreme variation of you know like all these like minor incursions you know you add a, up a bunch of cuts and now you have like now you have a real problem Um it's the same thing. You know, if the conflicts keep escalating, it gets bigger and bigger. I mean, again, that's the whole reason why I'm building the channel. I'm trying to bring people together under um, the true ideals uh, and to to create, what's it called? Uh, a critical mass in the opposite direction. That's the plan. Um, arts are a big part of that, by the way, which you apparently are, are into, um, but uh, figuring out how to do that as well. It's a bit, of, a bit complicated. Um, yeah, I mean, I think AI is a big part of the big part of the solution too. Like to definitely want AI that's value oriented. Maybe there'll be an AI battle. Maybe there'll be like a good AI and a bad AI. <laughs> be like, like why not? I mean, that happened in f-ing movies. Why can't it happen? I mean, that's kind of wild too. Um,
0: or like an AI. Well, listen, if we create AGI that actually is aligned with our values, right? Whatever that, because it's hard to say aligned because humanity has different values different culture has different values right but let's say the average values of humanity uh, it, it would be the best it would be the best technology we've ever created and the last technology we'd ever need to create. I mean we'd want for nothing anymore and it is a possibility there's no law of physics that states that we can't create something smarter than us that is aligned with our values. The problem is just that it's very 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 hard and we currently, don't know how to do it. So that's why I'm so in, I'm such in favor, the stakes are so high on both sides. If we get this wrong, it's very likely that we become extinct. If we get this right, it's very likely we live in utopia. Getting it right is really, really, really hard. So let's pause for the time being take some time and let's try to get it right chill and the closer low. we get to getting it right again i don't think it's a it's a binary thing we can get closer to getting it right where we don't all die and we live in a, somewhat of a utopia you know let's yeah. try to get as close it's to exactly, there as possible
1: not too bad you know just instead of like you know the straight up fiji islands you get the uh you know you get the brazilian beach or whatever it is uh, that's pretty good too that's better than total death and destruction I think this Definitely. might be a job for uh as commander are you going to become commander Kane come in uh, and uh,
0: help save humanity Oh boy
1: you could be the real oh commander
0: Kane It's yeah, yeah I'm not a, I'm not a big I'm not big on commanders because a libertarian I always you know but it's funny in this election cycle like I find myself like wanting to vote for like you know the more fascist candidate cuz I'm like we need somebody fine. to just like take charge from the top down and say like no AI but it's actually really interesting. We were talking about social media and the effects, negative effects that that's had on the, on the public. But it's actually a perfect example of AI that is unaligned with human values and the effect that it has on society because it was not the programmers at, at uh, Twitter and uh, you know, uh, uh, Facebook who decided what content were gonna, was gonna be put in front of people they actually left it in the hands of the AI. And what the AI did is they, you know, put a bunch of different content in front of people. They put content of political content and content in terms of, you know, animal, like cute animal videos and all that. And they're looking for what retains the most attention. And actually early on, it wasn't the political stuff that retained as much attention. But the AI learned that if it changed our our minds over time, if it made us more politically charged and more outraged, then it retains more attention in the future. So what it learned is that animal videos has a static amount of attention that it retains on day one and on day 365. We don't become any more interested in the animal videos the more that we see them. However, if we push political stuff on people, as people become more radicalized, the AI is like, oh, look, they're spending more time on Twitter now because it's a more radicalized person. And we just need to make them more and more and more increasingly radicalized and it was literally an ai system that came up with that not humans so Um, it's actually a perfect example of of how an ai system can do what one person you know or one tech company is optimizing for that's actually unaligned with what is good for humanity as a whole well
1: i don't know if i agree um in that it just chose what most people chose like it just put what most people wanted right in front of them so those most people let's put it like this it just it seems like it was still humans that chose like they literally
0: chose right
1: and they just said oh no we want on, no on day
0: no on the point i'm making is on day one most hu- humans actually uh would spend more time on twitter watching the animal videos than they would the political stuff on day they one chose they chose where to put their time but it but it, it's not the videos that're being that were' being optimized to be shown to these people like at, at the top of your Twitter feed whatever comes up at the top is not your choosing it's Twitter's choosing right mm-hmm so that that's what I'm saying, is, is Twitter could have put at the top of your feed all these animal videos and then humans would have spent a lot more time looking at the animal videos. Instead, they put these political videos up there because they knew that even though you spent, or political posts, they knew that even though you spend less time today on the political stuff as time goes on, you're going to, they're going to retain more and more attention of yours on the political stuff than the animal stuff which was stagnant. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying... Uh, it's, it's fascinating.
1: I'm saying it's still like it's still the people's taste, right? It's still the people's taste that they want to get all charged up about political stuff um, or not. Like that's still like what they wanted. You know what I mean? It's still like, it's like if you give someone candy, Like it's literally the same analogy. If you give someone candy, like people are gonna pay attention more to the candy than to something else, but they're still choosing the candy. Um, and they still have to keep choosing the candy for the, the machine to keep giving them the candy. Um, that's actually literally what's going right on I, think, I think the
0: point you're making is you can go on twitter even if these aren't the recommended videos to you and you can search for videos that don't have to do with politics or that don't get you charged up and people aren't doing that sure but as you can concede people are more likely to to consume the content that's directly in front of them yes of course right and so that's that's the that system. choice is big is it, is it well serious? I think, it, I think it's, a, it's part of humanity as a whole. I mean, humanity as a whole, we've now learned uh, uh, it retains more of its attention onto something when they're politically charged up about something and when you're outraged about something. Something that makes you outraged is more likely to keep the average human's attention and most human's attention than something that makes you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Well, I, I don't. I don't think that's a choice. I think. I think that's no, it's, that's that's part. That's part of our brain. It's part of our biology, right? I. I mean, it's just a fact. It's
1: uh, I think there's more to the story. I mean, it's a fact that. It's a fact that outrage will get you more charged. Yes, but with outrage comes all these other kinds of problems. It's kind of like you know, drama will get you more charged in a relationship. But do you want a relationship that's filled in drama? Probably f-ing no because you'd rather have something peaceful um, that isn't as charging because you know all the problems that come with that drama. And you know, and eventually you learn, F- this sucks. And then you try to get out of the relationship. And it's the same thing with like candy. I mean, candy literally charges you more, but if you eat so right. much candy, you're like, F-. like I need more candy. And then you keep like, uh, and then at some point you realize, oh shit, maybe I shouldn't eat candy all the time. I'm gonna eat some other stuff. It's just, why is this different from the political outrage you know what i mean it's like the value the value system do you value the short term high charge or do you value the long term that's not as high charged but you can still have those things anyway in their appropriate place and uh you still value the long term more do you value peace or do you value chaos and high I think, charges i think
0: the point you're making is that humans can choose to use twitter however they they want to and yes that's true but they're not right instead what's happening? Instead what's happening is the platform itself is putting out material that it knows will be likely I agree. to get people's attention and people are choosing to consume that material even though it's making them worse people and even though it's making them hate their parents or hate their friends or whatever who disagree with them politically. Yeah. So the I mean all of what you're saying is true.
1: What I'm saying is that that's a problem and it's good to educate them in the kind of way so that they can safely transition towards realizing back to you know, this is a problem. Yeah. Yes, back to yeah. the animal videos, correct. And also to videos about things that more benefit their life than getting enraged and like ruining all the relationships because, you know, they sided somewhere in, in some politics. Uh, that's the point right. I'm making is that I think that if that can be changed, this like this value system, or to be precise, I do want to change that, but... in There's even more nuance to it. To be precise, actually, what I think should be done... Is... For all the people like you and I... We don't care about political outrage so much... Or whatever. We don't, we don't want to watch that. But to basically bring all these people together... Um, and let the other people do whatever they want... To be honest. Um, if they want to follow... If want to change, then they should. They should have the choice of whether to change or not. But I believe that inevitably they will... Because they'll see that it sucks um because it does suck uh and this is the way that they choose for themselves you know destruction or choose um they figure out that destruction sucks i mean literally the bringing together of all the people you're, that are you're,
0: but your your expectation is that your expectation is that humans are going to go against their neurology and biology, like another great example is Tiktok, like most of the users on Tiktok spend more time than they want to, and they believe it's wasted time, right? Like this is just a fact, like people spend hours and hours, I'm not one of them, so I don't really get Tiktok, but people spend hours and hours and hours on Tiktok looking at, at, at meaningless Tiktoks, and then they say, man, I wish I didn't spend that much time, but then they go and do it the next day, right? It's the same with gambling and slot machines. And so, yes, there are some people who have the self-control to do that less, right? Like, I am less likely to become addicted to a slot machine than your average person or become addicted to TikTok, right? Because I have less of an addictive personality. But to to for you to think that humans in general are going to be able to avoid that just through free will or through choice. Not through free will. I, no, no,
1: no, no, no. Not through free will. I didn't say that. Not through free will that we know what's more powerful than three will a community um and the right like situations i mean you're exactly right that this is all a problem and that's exactly what's going on is that all this shit is manipulating them um and like the way that you change that is you find ways to turn that around somehow which is what i'm trying to do i mean it
0: sounds amazing but the problem is that community is less addictive than tiktok and this is know. why you see this is why you see little boys and girls I mean specifically with little girls the effect that social media is having on them is, is, is really really bad But this is why you're seeing children who are spending all of their time on their phone rather than going out in, in their community and, and riding their bike with their friends or going out to soccer practice or going out to the mall like we used to do growing up right um, you know, they have less community because social media is so addictive because TikTok, and to a lesser extent to younger generations, X now is, is so addictive. Um well. how do we get them how do we get them off of X and TikTok and instead choosing to go ride their bikes with their friends or, you know, go spend social time building relationships and doing things in their community?
1: Uh, for one thing baby steps um, well well here's the thing uh, people are more isolated than forever so definitely people are probably feeling confused and alone so there's quite a lot of objective forces that're pushing people together. Um, secondly you know I'm not trying to like build a community straight away anyway for these people to go ride their bikes with their friends or whatever like that's a problem that I'm not equipped to handle at the moment but what I am trying to do is build a poker community where probably pokers pretty tough and people don't know what to do and kind of bring everything kind of together in that context. And then, um, you know, uh, have a bunch of good values within that. And then from there, move on to other problems, basically.
0: So what I'm hearing is it's on an individual level. You're doing it on the poker level. There needs to be more effort by people like us who aren't necessarily addicted to these things to try to build communities and convince people to come spend their time in those communities rather than spending their time on, on TikTok and on Twitter, which yeah, I, I think that that, that, that would have, certainly have uh, some effect. Well some. Um, it's just the start. Sure. Well you, to get them to the big
1: effect, you gotta do the sum effect first. You gotta do the little bit of effect yeah. to get the sum effect, to get a little bigger effect, you get a snowball, there's all there's a massive effect all of a sudden. That's like the plan, okay? That's the f-ing plan. But not Absolutely. to mention um, uh, so not to mention that, but it's also a matter of like look, poker's already a fing community. It's just a matter of how like tightly knit it is. It's a matter of what's putting out there on the social media. Like everything you do social is, is, is communication. This is communication right here. You making your songs is communication. Your song is high hopes. You're literally comput- communicating hope through your song and it affects people, whoever buys it, they're like, yeah, I listen to this, I'm feeling hopeful today. And then like, they, they like uh, say it, tell it to someone else and they're like, you know, I feel a little hopeful too then all of a sudden the right. crowd of people feeling hopeful and then uh, um, you know then there's like a little a bundle of hope going on but um, that's like it's also the theme of cultural infecti- effectiveness that uh, that is uh, also what I'm trying to create but I'm doing it within poker probably a good way to start I mean I want to get into you know Hollywood and all this shit but it's going to be that's going to be very hard it's a huge game um, but right. you know uh, there's a magic guess, on there. Too. i guess
0: that's a good point i guess it is ironic that i i released an album titled high hopes when i yeah. think that uh we currently have a uh a, a, an x risk of over 50 in the, percent in the coming decade or two
1: well I, look at it also like this um like imagine like things from lower players perspectives they're looking up to other poker players and they're like yeah i want to be like successful and I want to have all this shit I'm like yeah I want to like travel the world and I want to become maybe they want to become a singer and like <laughs> a broadcaster whatever it is and then they see Kane Callas oh shit Kane Callus is trying to stop AI yeah I want to f- do that too and they see Kane Callus like talking about hope and shit oh shit or if they see like someone else doing something bad and like maybe they're turned off or maybe they decide to follow their example do you know what I mean
0: right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, we, we can affect the behavior of other people. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, if you are compelled by what I'm saying and you want to learn more, some great people that you can, you know, search on YouTube or, or wherever about this is Eliezer Yudkowsky. Uh, he, he's probably the first person to start thinking about uh, the, the risks. Eliezer Yudkowsky is his name. Last name is Y U uh, D K O W s k y he's he like basically founded the field of worrying about the existential risk of of ai in 2007 or so and so there's some really great great stuff he he has like a 10 minute ted talk you can watch where he just breaks down the the existential uh risk another uh another one is connor connor leahy um Speaks about this, and then if you're interested in contributing, I found that, I, in my opinion, some of the best places where you can put your money towards helping this problem, Arc Evals is number one. What they basically do is they're looking at current models that exist, or or models that haven't yet been released to the public that mm-hmm. exist at OpenAI and and uh, you know Google DeepMind and, and wherever, and they're they're trying to figure out pro, uh, pro, poke and prod these models to have dangerous outputs. Um, that's really, really important and we need that. It's Paul Cristiano who runs that and he does a great job. Uh, on the governance side, um, the Horizon Institute is in the fellowship space. So they're basically taking people who understand AI or are concerned about AI and they're matching them up in Washington uh, with, with different people in Congress. And um, C C A I S which is um, the Center for Artificial Intelligence Security. It's safe.ai is the name of the website. Uh, they do a lot of great stuff. They actually have a course on their website that, that goes through like AI, the problems that could exist from it, uh, all of the risks that come from it. Um, and also they were behind uh, getting the, a letter signed um, that AI is, a, is an existential risk that we should be worried about. They got, you know, Hundreds of signatories of senators of literally everybody, oh. in all of the companies developing uh, so you know. this stuff, except 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 for Meta, because you'll get fired. Zuckerberg will fire you if you say AI is a risk. So that they oh, don't man. admit it over there, Zuckerberg. but everywhere else. <laughs> oh, I would have loved to see that uh, that fight between Zuckerberg and Elon. That's probably not going to happen. I'm going to fight Zuckerberg. You should you should tweet at him. He's not going to fight me he him he'll, he'll say he'll say uh
1: send location well he'd probably beat my ass but i'll fight him uh, <laughs> i'll fight him i'll do i'll definitely do that um sign me up uh like that's good like i'm trying to go i'm trying to like go viral you know what f- you zuck you don't you're not trying to build some f- up ai i to f- fight you he, he <laughs> honestly he honestly
0: <laughs> he honestly might fight you really if you just, if you i'll just, do it yeah I don't, he loves fighting he loves he loves fighting I'll get my ass kicked by Zuckerberg until, I'll get my ass kicked a
1: bunch of times. That'd be kind of epic, actually. If like, just He's like, in kicking. very, very good shape. I'm in pretty Although, good shape, too. A, are you, yeah, are you in great shape now? I think this might might be kind of a fair fight. I think I'm fiercer than him, for sure. Uh, he doesn't look yeah, much. He's yeah, very, but he's very good at jiu-jitsu. Well, I'm very good at f- in poker, and jiu-jitsu is like, probably up my alley, even though I haven't tried. I'll still f- fight him.
0: Well, tweeted him. Maybe, maybe he'll, I'll tweet he'll do it. He, I'll he's do he's it. been training. He got a uh, he installed right, like cool. a ring I've been
1: in his backyard. Too. I'm training. I, I'll, I'll learn jujitsu. it, I'll learn jujitsu to beat your ass.
0: There you
1: go. All right. You know what? This now is that his idea. match is probably
0: off with Elon, I'm sure he's looking for somebody to fight. So
1: I'll be, I'll be like, yo, pick on someone your own size who hasn't doesn't know jujitsu at all. Exactly. <laughs> you might think it's funny. Um... It's kind of funny. All right, well, I'm down to fight him. I don't, I don't mind getting my ass beat. That's the thing. Uh, I don't, I'll get my ass beat to save humanity. All right, that's a pretty good cause, right? Like, feels like a good investment.
0: It's not bad. I'll be there. I, I want to have front row seats to
1: this. All right, well, we'll get you, get you some seats. You suggested it. Uh, Shit, you got me all excited. I'm excited about the fight.
0: Um, What's gonna be the pun? What if he beats you? What's gonna be the punishment? Like, he's gonna fight me again. He, he.
1: If you beat him, again. then
0: he needs to acknowledge that a publicly that AI is an existential risk. The punishment is,
1: he dresses up as like a lizard person and said, "All right, guys, I'm a lizard person. Uh, I, <laughs> sorry, I was evil. Uh, like that's if uh oh, that oh, if I get beat, I don't know. What's yeah, what, what, if, be the punishment?
0: what if you get beat? What is?
1: Oh, um, um, I'm not sure. I feel like we gotta add the lizard man to him getting beat though.
0: Um, I, feel, I feel like if, if you get beat then the punishment should be like you need to release some sort of like pornographic strip poker video. You know all what right, I mean? Alright, uh, <laughs> right, I guess someone has to do
1: it. Alright. I'm, uh, I'm uh, wait, okay. wait a second, has this
0: already happened, Jungle?
1: Um, no comment. So, <laughs> yeah. Alright. Uh, I, I really hope he says yes. Even though he will for sure kick my ass if it has to be Within the next month. Wait, if you
0: get if you get beat, then you need to curse at at Scott Siever, uh, at the table. You need to. What are the other crazy things Jungle Man has done? You've made some headlines before throwing Jungle. chips. Did that, ever, some... did that ever? Did that I mean, happen? I've
1: done a few crazy things, but uh, you know, someone's gotta someone's gotta do some crazy stuff. I'll tweet someone's out. Someone's gotta there. be there to stir it up, stir up the pot. Okay. Uh, I'll learn jujitsu to take him down. I don't know where I'm gonna find the time, but you know, figure it out. You're just talking about the stuff gets the, gets the, this is is education about this in the first place. Like it does not have to be this way that you have, that everyone has to, you know, be enraged by political shit. Like, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to, this can be changed is what I'm saying. Um, Everything's infectious. There's still hope, high hopes, remember. There we go.